Blog Talk Radio. You are listening to Help for HD Live, the first podcast created for families living with Huntington's and juvenile Huntington's disease. Don't forget to find us on iTunes, Blog Talk, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. You can also search over 500 archived episodes and other projects at helpforhd.org. To watch us in person, find Help for HD TV on YouTube and subscribe and ring the bell for notifications on new content. Help for HD Live is going on air in 5, 4, 3, 2, Hello, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in to Help for HD Live. This podcast is made possible because of a grant from Teva Pharmaceuticals, Neurocrine Biosciences, and the Griffin Foundation. I'm your host, Lauren Holder, and today we have uh, Katrina Hamill on with us for our second episode of HD Uncut. Um, For those who are not familiar with Katrina, Katrina is um, a a person who is gene negative. She has been a caregiver for um, her mother and her brother, um, and she's also the CFO of Help for HD International. And so I am having her come on um, and, and Katrina is going to be uncensored and uncut today and share her story, uh, her HD journey, and um, just share her feelings and thoughts with us. So thanks so much for joining me today, Katrina. Oh, gosh, yes. I'm, I'm happy to be here and be a part of this. I know sometimes I'm somewhat reserved just because um, my attention is elsewhere with other people's needs, but I'm happy to be here. and and talk about all of it. So thanks for having me. Absolutely. So let's start with um, with your journey, how, you know, how HD affects you and your family and where it all began. Awesome. Yeah. So, you know, growing up, <clears throat> I had an interesting relationship with my mom, and uh, we didn't ever hear about Huntington's disease. Um, I did know that my grandmother, her mom, had um, passed away tragically. There was a lot of emotions around it. We didn't quite understand it. I was, I think, eight at the time. Excuse me. And what had actually happened was my grandmother um, had Huntington's disease, and she was going after, like, help. Like, she wanted help. She couldn't find the right type of help. Um, People told her that she actually didn't have Huntington's disease. Um, And this was uh, 1990, gosh, it was right before 94. So I'm going to say maybe I was 10, maybe it was 1992. Anyway, I guess that doesn't matter. Point is, is she ended up taking her own life by jumping out of a window. And um, I think it was three to five stories, somewhere in there. And, of course, because I was so young and everything, you know, I didn't get all the facts, and I didn't find out till many years later what had actually happened, um, how she had lost her life. And it's little bits and pieces from one family member and then another family member, and it's kind of pieced together what I think has happened. Um, but she did commit suicide. And um, then moving forward, my mom inherited the gene as well as, um, two of her brothers, and um, 
you know, like I said, we had a bit of a tumultuous relationship. We kind of argued a lot. And I'm like, well, you know, I was also a very hard teen. I was a very hard teen and I was hard headed and talked my opinion, et cetera. And she was the same way. I mean, we were kind of equal in that respect. Um, and when she, um, you know, was working in a restaurant, she had fallen and, you know, ended up with a small settlement and everything from that point on related to her physical health, she blamed on that fall. And the fall wasn't anything where she needed surgery. It was something she fell and she needed a chiropractor. She did have pain. She did have discomfort and things of that nature. Um, but she, it wasn't completely debilitating in any respect. Um, but it did, it was the signs that had started physically showing around that time. And she was dropping her pens and dropping her coffee and things like that. Still, again, we had no idea. Well, my siblings and I had no clue that Huntington's was a thing. Um, I believe my father and my mother, for sure my mother, knew basically all the details as far as, you know, a genetic disease. But they chose to have their kids, which I am very thankful for. And I know that is obviously a um, a personal choice. But they had us. We're grateful. They um, They didn't tell us about Huntington's. So I was a teen mom. I had my first daughter and my mom continued to get worse as far as her psychiatric behaviors, her um, anger outbursts, her um, kind of making up scenarios that didn't exist to the rest of us or, you know, like just different perspectives, different realities. And it was really hard to navigate when we didn't understand what was happening. So I'm a teen mom. I already have my child. And um, my mom has kind of left my dad. She finds another person to be with and moves away, leaves behind her children, her house, everything. And um, at some point she gets pregnant and I get pregnant and we're pregnant at the same time. And I end up finding her and she's homeless. And um, when... We find each other. We're both pregnant, which is extremely shocking to me, being 20 and she was 30, or I'm sorry, 40. So 20 and 40, and we're both pregnant, and she's stumbling around. She's falling. She's um, unable to properly care for herself. So now I have two children, and I had heard the words Huntington's at this point. I had heard that it was... Um, a disease that can be very hard to manage. But I hadn't heard more than that, and I wasn't involved with social media and didn't have any other reason to kind of look into it. Um, and then someone had told me, long story short, I was in a neurology office with um, a client I was helping and kind of started picking around and found out that um, Huntington's is actually genetic from one parent to a child. And I instantly started freaking out because at that point I had two kids and I was angry and I was really pissed off at the situation because I, um, I had to, I wasn't given the choice to have children or not, or to do IVF or anything like that. Like I, I was not given a choice and I think that was my biggest issue. So moving forward, yada, yada, I test negative. 
which is great for my children. Um, I take care of my mom until she passes away. And um, that was very, very difficult, very difficult um, because of the lack of her ability to connect with her Huntington's disease. She um, decided early on that she did not have it. And that was not true. So um, then my brother tested positive as well in 2012 after she had passed, or in 2013, excuse me. So, yeah, that's kind of like the roundabout of how, you know, I found out about HD, how it came into my life, and how I became a caregiver to my mom, and then now my brother. Gosh, every time I uh, I talk to you, like, and hear your story, I always get a new piece. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, first off, let me start with uh, the suicide part and um, how traumatic that has to be to be 10 and and to lose your grandmother that way and to not understand what's going on. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is. It's traumatic and it's, um, I think it's honestly worse for me, not now, but like when HD was so new to me then than it was when when she actually passed because because she we lived in different sides of the U.S. and maybe I should have said that, but I live in California, born and raised. She was, I don't know honestly where she was born, but she spent her life in Connecticut, so complete opposite sides of the United States. All of my mom's family basically stayed in Connecticut. Um, And so I didn't know her, know her. We had phone conversations or we visited a couple times or she visited us. Very, very minimal contact. Like we didn't have regular um, weekly communication or anything like that. So for her to not be in my life wasn't something like an entire whole because it wasn't somebody I was extremely bonded to. And I say that, but I mean, and it may sound cold to people, but there just wasn't that connection like there was to my dad's grand or my dad's mom, who I spent all my time with, my Hawaiian grandma, all my time with. She lived with us on and off. And with my mom's mom, there was definite sadness. And I remember crying and I remember being like, what happened to her? How did she die? But nobody really telling us other than she was sick. So that could have meant cancer. It could have meant a a flu, a cold, a a virus, or something that wasn't manageable. Um, And it wasn't until other family members told me um, how she passed. And when I found out, I, I, it's, it's something weird that we do, right? Like as human beings, we're like, oh my God, if I only knew. I'm like, what? I was 10. Like, what could I have done? Like, um, I couldn't have been a huge advocate like I can be as an adult. I couldn't have gone to appointments with her and helped her manage this, like from California. Like, there's just nothing I could have done. But your heart and your soul tells you, oh gosh, I wish I would have known. Uh, I wish my, my dad or my mom or my uncles or their wives or whomever in the family would have done more. Um, one of my uncle's wives, Ida, she was heavily involved with my mom's family um, over there, and she was an amazing um, support to them. But even so, it still um, wasn't enough because her mind was playing tricks on her, and it caused her to, you know, leave this life because it was too much to manage for her, understandably. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's um, 
That's heavy. Um, yeah, and, you know, I think a lot of people don't know that part of my story. I did write it, um, you know, a selfless plug here, but um, Help Reishi has a couple of books that are extremely powerful, and I don't say that because I wrote a chapter in it, <laughs> but you know. Um, but there are two books called Life Interrupted Volume 1 and Life Interrupted Volume 2, and they are findable on um, on Amazon, excuse me. Um, and oftentimes we will have them at our live events, but they detail a lot of my story, but still, like you would read it after hearing this interview and you would learn more bits and pieces. And then you talk to me and you'll learn more bits and pieces because that's just how complex HD really is. Right. Mm-hmm, and yeah. I think that, yeah, I think it is something that people can re- relate to that I'm, I'm happy to talk about, but I almost feel like, like because it didn't impact me as severely as other community members where they've had to walk in on somebody who has done that to themselves or um, witness it or it be their, their spouse or their child or somebody with a much closer emotional connection. Like I don't always feel like I have the right to speak on it, which I know sounds silly, but I'm just being completely honest how I feel like I just sometimes I'm yeah. like, ah, you know it's not that hard for me it's terrible it's horrible and I wish I could have known her life and her family's life and know about her parents and things like that but I don't and so I I often find myself holding back on that um, but I am glad to share it I am glad to the people who have had to deal with this they're not alone this is such a traumatic event when somebody takes their own life thinking they are ending their own suffering, but also thinking of their loved ones, trying to, you know, alleviate any kind of burden, and it's not a burden. And that's like a whole other subject. But, like, my heart goes to her thinking, I really, truly hope that she was not feeling like a burden when she made that decision. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's – as a person who is gene positive, I've got to say, like, that's, a, I think, a number one concern that we all have is being a burden to our loved ones um, and, yeah. you know, not not wanting to be that. So um, to hear right. somebody say it, I think, is also very important. Um, yeah. You know, because it I really think, is it's honest, one of our biggest concerns. Right. Right. And, and, I, and I only know that because I hear it right, from you, from you all, from everybody I know that has told me that they are gene positive, you know, including my brother. My brother, like, literally, dude, I'm so sorry, but, like, he told me, like, early on, like, early on, beginning of his diagnosis, he's like, you know, maybe it would just be better if I move into a home now. And I'm like, what Mm -hmm. the heck? And it was, like, literally just because, he had to give up his license. And and I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, what? Like, no. Um, I mean, like, unless that's literally your dream to, like, live in, a, in like, a, in a care home where they, like, you know, maybe, maybe you have this idea, this dream that, like, maybe they're going to cater to you. It's not really like that. But I'm like, I don't know. Like, and we had a really long conversation about it, and it did come out that he felt like, because I'd have to take him places and, you know, do his grocery shopping with him and things like that, that, like, that's too much for me. And it it broke my heart. It really did. And it does to this day because 
I'll go help him and I will, um, you know, clean his house and do whatever is needed over there. And like he'll say, thank you so many times when I'm there. And then I leave and I'm getting a text. Thank you again for doing, you know, X, Y, Z. I really appreciate it. And I'm just like, oh, man, it's just, it's very sweet. It's very sweet. But it's also heartbreaking because I think he feels like he has to. Um, you know, it's just, it's a hard thing to to navigate. It's a hard thing to to try and figure out how to help him feel like he is um, not a burden. And so, like, we do a lot of, like, dark humor and things like that. And, you know, I'm like, and I joke with him all the time. I'm like, you remember I took care of Ma, right? Like, you remember what she did to us and how she treated me. I'm like, you are so easy. And, like, even if he was hard, you know, like, it, it would still not be a burden. But because he's so easy, I'm like, I like to joke with him. Like, you remember Ma? Like, don't don't go there. We're fine. You know, because I think laughter helps him believe me, you know, and it is all true. It's just a, a, the matter of how I deliver what I say, you know, and show him on a daily that he isn't a burden, you know. I love that, too. And, and I was sitting here laughing because I literally do the same thing to my cousin where um, yeah. when she comes to help me, I'll sit there and, and just go, thank you so much. And then I'm texting her, thank you again. I'm sorry for, you know, needing help. Aww. And it's because it's because I don't want to feel like a burden. And so um, if I'm not capable of doing something myself, then I must be a burden. And, I mean, it's a terrible oh mindset to be in, but I definitely feel it. So my heart goes out to your brother, too, because I, I know exactly what he feels. Right. Right. And that's something I can't feel like I feel I felt like a burden. Believe me. I mean, I have definitely felt like a burden in my life, but not in the same respect. I haven't had somebody have to be my caregiver. Right. Yet. I will, but not yet. And so I don't know exactly what that feels like. But I do like it's just interesting because, like I said earlier, the mind plays tricks on you, you know, and, and not just HD minds like every mind. Like I I mean, I go and I there's things I can't do. Right. And I will ask for help for someone to do something for me or somebody to, oh, my gosh, I don't even know how to, okay, for example, change my oil or I don't know how to put this, this picture on my wall straight or I can't lift this or I can't figure out this email and I call Katie and I'm like, what does this even mean? Right. And so like, like, but if I had HD and I had to call somebody to help me put some, like a picture on my wall or figure out an email or you know, do something on my car that I used to be able to do or whatever it is, I would interpret that most likely as a burden because I'm relating it to a disease that I have. Like that's the only way in my mind that I can like simulate it, like to be like, okay, that's why Kevin feels that way or that's why, you know, Lauren feels that way. And it's it's completely untrue. Like you, my brother, whomever is not a burden, but it's so understandable as to why people are left to feel that way. Yeah, absolutely. So let me bring up your, your mom and being her caregiver. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, not having a choice when it came to having kids. Um, yeah. And, and everything. Um, so I know those are probably some hard feelings. Um, talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah. 
Okay, so there were so many feelings because growing up, I did not ever, I don't know the right words for this, like I didn't ever feel like good enough, I guess you could say, like looking back, like I, I was always like, oh, I didn't do this right. I didn't do that right. I, you know, and mainly through the eyes of my mom. My dad and I never had, right? My dad, I mean, he talked me up so much that I thought I was glorious, right? <laughs> but my mom and I, that was different. <clears throat> but, so like, anyway, like, there were a lot of hard feelings anyway with her, um, especially as she got sicker and say, you know, I'm in junior high and I'm playing sports. I literally lived across the street from the school. Like, I could throw a rock from my front door, and I could hit the gym where I'd play sports, basically. And my mom used to come to everything, everything. Like, I couldn't get space from her. I couldn't breathe. She was at everything. And over time, she wouldn't show up. And I'd come home, and she'd be sleeping. And I didn't understand. So I was an angry teenager anyway, and... I think some of those feelings of disappointment and sadness and not being like, not necessarily wanted, but um, like just not paid attention to, I kind of took it as personal, right, when it wasn't. So back then there were a lot of feelings. And then as time went on, she left us once and she went with her, her new boyfriend. She left her three kids and her husband behind. And then she came, and so I was obviously like, F you. I don't want anything to do with you. Don't talk to my brothers. Like, I was very protective of my brothers. But I was like, do not come back. We want nothing to do with you. You are disgusting. Like, just, we were, we were broken. We were broken. And then, um, while she was gone, that's when I found out more about Huntington's, um, just in the way that, like, it might be in the family, not so much the fact that it was genetic. But I kind of, like, meaning from parent to child. Like, I didn't know it was that direct. I thought maybe it's a, you know, random thing throughout families. But I didn't know much and whatever. So um, that was one time. Then she, I find her, um, figure out she's homeless and pregnant. And I bring her home. And she's with me for about, I guess, two or three months while she's pregnant at the end of her pregnancy, while she has my brother. And then um, she leaves when he is about three months old again with the same guy. And that really broke us again. And we were really like devastated. Um, And then, you know, moving forward, figuring out about HD and all of that several years go by and I find her again, homeless. And she um, lost my brother Um, to social services, and he eventually was adopted out. And um, the reason why was because um, his father was not very good to my mom and ended up in jail, and my mom was unable to care for my brother. And, you know, little things would happen. She would fall holding him and have to take him to the hospital. And then they thought she was drunk. And then this is all kind of like, told to me afterwards, like years and years later. But that was kind of a scenario. So uh, my brother was adopted out, 
and then I find my mom and majority of the time she was sleeping on a park park bench. But during the really cold days, she would go to a, a freeze, a no freeze zone is what it was called in Willimantic, Connecticut. And um, she was there and I found her and I um, brought her home and I cared for her for the next three years. Um, and I would like to say somewhere around, I guess my son was, so my son and my brother are two weeks apart. And my son is two weeks older than his nephew, which is quite interesting. But anyway, um, I, <clears throat> I'm, I'm sorry, I'm so like sporadic with my with my thoughts that I'm trying to get it all out there. But oh, so you're he, good. You, seriously, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like I'm like from bouncing around. But um, so my my mom, I bring my mom home, and I would say my son is about three years old. No, he had to have been more like five. Okay, anyway, so bring her home, and I care for her for the rest of her life. But when when I'm, like, trying to find her, it took me a long time to find her. Lots of calls. I called every, like, public um, charity that helps people with um, homelessness over there because I knew that was kind of her MO, and I sent emails to people with pictures of her um, trying to find her and eventually I did and I think that was kind of like the healing process of it all because I didn't know I wasn't informed I wasn't educated enough to know that this is something that she could not control like all of my childhood all of the little things that she did that created the person I am that gave me a very extra like emotional inside but hard exterior came from the way she raised me. And I think that I'm very grateful for that, but I'm also very broken from it. And I think that a lot of it has to do with, like, I I forgave her 100%, 100% as soon as I knew that this is what was going on. Um, there was a lot of resentment about her not letting me know about – um about, you know, it being genetic and what have you. But I think when I when I think about the situation, I think my parents were somewhat hopeful that she wouldn't end up like her mom. That's one. And two, because my mom moved out here and away from all of her, her sick family members, meaning her mom and siblings up there, um, I feel like she didn't know how how bad, quote unquote, it could get for somebody who's untreated and, you know, all of that. And so she probably was just thinking, you know, either one, it's not all that bad. And if I do have it, you know, we'll figure it out by then. And I just think that she wanted children. And I am so glad she did. I am just so glad she did because you just think back of like, okay, if she decided not to, which is also fine, like me and my brothers, me and my three brothers wouldn't be here. My children wouldn't be here. My grandson wouldn't be here. And so there's a lot of thought that has to go into that to heal and a lot of thought that has to go into it to um, to give full forgiveness. Like there is no reason why I am mad at her. I do like call her names and this is something else that's just silly that I do, but I'm like, oh my God, she was crazy. She was awful. She was mean. She was this. She was that. But I always end it with, nah, 
HD. You know what I mean? Like, it's not who she was. Because when she was good, she was really good. She was a good mom when she was on point, you know, when she was not dealing with her illness. She was so good and so attentive and so loving and so understanding and inclusive to everybody around her. Um, Laughing, smiling, everything. She was beautiful. Um, But, you know, HD, untreated especially, can really um, change someone, you know? Oh, 100%. I think that's such a good point yeah. that, you know, untreated HD is is a beast. Um, you know, when – and you're a perfect example of you've dealt with somebody who denied the HD, who refused to receive treatment um, versus your brother who is accepting the help and is aware. Um, and like you said, it's night and day, right? Like he's nothing – compared to how your mom was. Right. No. I mean, just such night and day. Like, okay, for example, and I can give you some of these examples because to me it's just so astonishingly different. Um, First of all, in my own life, I'm not somebody, quote, unquote, that um, is a med pusher. I don't know. That's just the term that everyone seems to use in this society. But I am somebody who's kind of like, well, I mean, do we need to take the med or do we not? Like, let's just wait and see. And then it's like, yeah, we do need the med, so let's take it. Like, I'm that kind of person. I'm not like, I, give me all the meds. Like, <laughs> I'm, like for example, I'm a type 1 diabetic and I take insulin, but that's the only medicine I'm currently taking. So, you know, like, that's fine. That's my choice. That's what I do with my body. So my mom, like I had said, if we go back in this conversation, she had fallen um, again, I think the beginning of physical symptoms for her, because looking back at pictures when she was working at this restaurant, I actually have a picture of her with her hand twisted up and um, her jaw kind of sideways. And back then we just thought, oh, you know, that's Ma. She's just being silly, moving around, you know, whatever. But looking at the picture, it's like you don't usually see still images and say, oh, my gosh, that was Korea. You know, but I do have a picture of her before we knew what HD was. And it was, like, shocking when I re-looked at that picture. But anyway, so this fall happens, and everything that happens from that point on physically um, is all all about this fall. Um, and then when we started, you know, when I got her and I found her and yada, yada, she was receiving a government check. And the people who kind of helped her through that, they weren't sure if she had diagnosed Huntington's or if it was simply that she had somewhat of a physical exam and she was not diagnosed but just unable to work, um, if she had a psychological or, or cognitive exam and she was um, processed as not being able to work, I do not know. Um, and that is still a mystery, which I haven't dove into, but... Anyhow, she comes to the house, and um, pretty quickly after that, I'm like, hey, let's, you know, get you into, like, a regular doctor. Like, start slow. Like, let's get you in. Just in case you get a cold, we need to know who to take you to and get your vitals and yada, yada. And she's like, no. And I'm like, "Um, okay, why? And she's like, because I don't want to. I'm like, okay. But, like, what if you get sick? She's like, well, we'll just go to the ER. 
And then I'm like, okay. And then like we had a frank conversation about Huntington's and she's like, um, no, I don't have Huntington's. And I'm like, oh, okay. Um, are you noticing? Cause at the time she was, her wrist was like going wild. Her, her elbow, it's hard to explain without a visual, but her elbow would always kind of like go up on top of her head. And she, then she'd go from there and fling her arm out. So it's kind of like elbow up and then fling the arm out. And then she would um, kind of rock back and forth. And I would kind of gently try and bring up, like, are you noticing these things in you? And I, I was like, you know, when you left California, I didn't notice them. And do you think it could be part of Korea? And she was like, no. And I, it was very hard to, like, have a conversation with her. So then we try and apply for in-home support services so that I can um, work part-time versus full-time and I could um, help her more, like get to doctor's appointments or just take care of her physical needs because when she came home, she had a helmet matted of hair. Like it was literally one solid piece that I had to detangle and manage, but that's another story. Um, So when she is, you know, applying for IHSS, we get down to the person coming to the house, which I think is amazing that we don't have to go out for this, you know, thing. So the person comes and she's looking at me with the widest eyes because my mom's like, no, nothing's wrong with me. And she's watching her as she's spilling coffee all over herself, all over the table, and then like constantly hitting herself in the chest. Um, And then um, you know, she does her assessment, whatever, and she leaves. Obviously, I did tell the person coming over, you know, I gave her a heads up about my mom, and I'm like, hey, she has something that, you know, sometimes happens with Huntington's, and it's, um, you know, of course, it's anecdotal, but I didn't say that. I said she's um, she's just not aware of her symptoms, and that's something that happens inside the brain with people with HD sometimes. And so you might ask her um, if she has trouble swallowing and she's going to tell you no, but you will watch her choke on her coffee because it's too thin. And because I was a caregiver prior to taking care of my mom, I knew these things. I knew these symptoms. I knew what was happening to her body. And um, I explained it to the person that came over. So when the person came, she did her assessment and she left and she called me and she was like, oh my gosh, I, I am just so sorry. I can't believe this. Yada, yada, yada. And eventually um, she sent over some paperwork for us to sign. So we go to sign the paperwork and I sign mine and my mom, I, that was the turn of her sweet and kindness for the first few weeks. Cause she was pretty sweet when she first came back and she looked at me like she was going to murder me. I mean, like she just had these eyes and I'm like, what is going on Matt? She's like, why are you trying to steal my money? And I'm like, what? <laughs> like I was so shocked. And then, what, what, I mean, basically, my mom has zero, zero money. Her check that came in was $900 a month. Um, and at that point, she hadn't gotten a check since she had come back with me. So she hadn't had any money. Assumed that whatever the state was going to pay me for. So IHSS is a state-provided program for people who are low-income who need care in the house. And that happens in a couple of different states. But she thought that with her signing the paper, I was going to take all of my mom's check that came in and any other money, quote unquote, that she had saved, which she had zero. Um, She had no assets. She didn't have a home. She, nothing. So 
I was shocked that she had thought that and, and instantly felt anger towards her and like, how could you? And then I had to like check myself. I'm like, okay, this is again, her brain playing a trick on her. Um, and so once I calmed down and everything happened, I got on the phone with the lady and she thought, let me get a verbal confirmation from your mom and then we can use your signature from now on. So I just kind of like speaker and I'm like, you know, Ma, are you okay with like me helping take care of you every day? And she's like, yes. And then I'm like, and would it be okay if IHSS was involved, but they would like, they would pay me money, but like you wouldn't pay me anything and you'd still get your check for $900. Um, But that would mean I could stay home for a couple extra days and I could hang out with you, you know, and like just did it like that. And she said yes to everything. So that was enough. Right. So I took care of her, but I could see a lot of psychological changes, a lot of, um, you know, different realities than my own. And um, that was really hard to navigate. As things progressed, her Korea got terrible to where she fell every day. She had shrunk Korea where she would bend over at the waist, like all the way down and swing backwards. Um, And, you know, a couple of things that happened that were like pretty major with her having untreated Korea and untreated psychiatric issues were one, one time, um, you know, I came home from the store, gone for a very minimal amount of time, and I found her laying on her floor, and there was blood underneath her head. And I instantly, obviously, panicked, ready to call 911, but then I see her flopping around. So I, I know she's okay in, in a sense of, like, she hasn't passed. But she is flopping around and spreading blood all over the floor and had spilt some of her water. So water mixed with blood obviously makes it look like much larger of an amount. Okay. So I'm like, Ma, what happened? Ma, what happened? And what ended up happening was she banged herself against a padded table. I padded everything. But she banged herself against the padded table right in the perfect spot, which was underneath her ear. And and I say perfect, meaning the perfect storm, right? The perfect area to create a big injury. And what happened was the ear lobe had basically torn off of the side of her head. And excuse me for the visual, but this is, it's all just coming out. So. I'm like, Ma, we need to we need to call nine one one or I need to take you to the ER because you definitely need some stitches. Um, I I'm holding her, you know, I'm holding a towel on her ear, um, but I can definitely see that I can move her earlobe more than um you know, prior to this injury. And she's just, No, no, absolutely not. No. I'm not going to the ER because they're gonna lock me up in a in um in a facility. And I know that was always her biggest fear, is being locked up in a facility. And so I kind of assess it thinking, well, even if they came, she can literally tell them no. And because she doesn't have, I don't have any of her diagnosis on hand saying, you know, she has psychiatric issues, I cannot tell them what to do. If she says no and refuses care, they, can, they, they can't care for her. Um, so... I super glued her ear with medical super super glue, and um, I did it several times 
over the next few days to make sure it adhered, and it did. Her ear completely healed. Um, I highly do not recommend this for anyone listening. This is in in no way advice. It is, in fact, the opposite. We were just lucky that it worked. Um, You know, that was one incident. The other is she was a a big smoker, um, as a lot of people enjoy. Um, But she lit her hair on fire. And, you know, about a quarter of her hair was gone after she lit her hair on fire. Um, Because of her career, she would slam back and forth, back and forth, up and down, up and down. And one time she was just sitting outside and she goes to get up and she had an involuntary movement and smashed into a window and her head went through the window. Um, ultimately, I mean, there's so many different stories I could, I could go on and on about with her. Um, but ultimately what happened was we were in public. We would always spend um, her, her check day out. We would go to get her check. She would cash it at a liquor store because she didn't have an ID and refused to give up information to get an ID. But the liquor store, you know, they worked with us very well. And um, she would cash her check and spend like, you know, $100 in the liquor store on sugar. And then we'd go through a drive-thru and she'd get literally about $100 in fast food and she'd eat it over the course of two days. And then we'd go home. Um, she would get a couple cartons of cigarettes, and, you know, she'd be a happy little little creature for a little bit. But this last time we took her, I had – it was just me and my, my little toddler in the car with her. And um, she jumps out of the car while we are still driving down the street. Um, and we're in the middle of the street. And she can't walk at this point because she's much more ill and her chorea has really taken over her body. Um, And she is hobbling, rolling, crawling in the street. So I have to leave her in the street so I can go safely move my car out of the middle of the street because my toddler was in it. If it was just myself, I would have obviously left it in the middle of the street and got my mom. But I had to protect my toddler. And I move the car to the nearest safest spot, run back, grab her, and try and get her in the car. And she's screaming, just screaming like you just, you can't imagine. And eventually, as I'm holding on to her, she's like clawing my face and, you know, whatever, her her 80 pounds or 70 pounds at that point um, was easily manageable as far as me being able to direct where we're going but she was still, you know, attacking me. And then we get to where she wants to go, which is back inside the liquor store. And she's screaming, call 911, call 911. And she is just screaming. And the guy looks at me, he's like, do you want me to call? I said, no. I said, I'm going to call because they need to know what's going on in this situation. And if you call, um, they're going to come in like with guns a-blazing. So I need to um, give them a heads up. And he's like, understandable. And she's just like those chip holders those tall chip holders, she's pulling them down to the ground. She's like thrashing all the candy. I mean, it was a huge mess. Um, So I call, say we need um, a police officer, but we really need the psychiatric team to come along. Um, If you have sirens blazing, it's going to stress her out more than she already is. 
she has Huntington's disease and it's, um, you know, causes this, this, and that. And they asked, you know, are you her BPOA, her durable power? And I'm like, I am not, but I, I haven't had the knowledge, the know-how, the ability, the finances to um, get a lawyer to take her to be her guardian and then her DPOA, et cetera, et cetera. Like I just didn't have the energy, time, knowledge, and finances to make that happen in my life. Um, so they were like, that's fine. That's fine. It's still an emergency because of what she's doing right now in public. So um, they come to get her, and she physically attacks two police officers, pulling them down to the ground. They're wrestling with her. Um, and then they take her away and they put her in a car and she's just looking at me desperately. It's terrible. I mean, she's looking at me so desperately. Um, and then, you know, they take her to the hospital, do a 72 hour hold. And basically I had to say with that care team, I'm like, I cannot take her back. And the reason why is they asked if I have children in the home. And I said, yes. And at that time, I had quite a few children because I I was helping extra children. And they said, basically, she can't go to your house or CPS will be called. Um, That's something I don't talk about too much because it's, it was, it was hard because it was, it almost took that for me to relinquish caring for her. I called adult protective services on myself to help get her showered. I, I tried every avenue I knew to get her to see a doctor, get medication, et cetera, et cetera. And it just didn't work. So um, my my mom um, ended up having to go to a care home and be forcibly medicated. Um, and that to this day just bugs the heck out of me. And I think there's some guilt there. There's some, like, I am a caregiver. I am a daughter. Why could I not do it? You know what I mean? And, again, it's – it goes back to um, her mind playing tricks on her and her not understanding that I am trying to do what's best for her and that I do have her in mind of, you know, just taking care of her. And so this is where we end up. So she's there for a couple of months um, and getting everything kind of put together or whatever. And I go down and see her, but because of the way HD is um, and how there's like this stigma and there's this, preconceived idea of what they're going to expect. She was not um, accepted in any care homes in our area. So it was about a three, four hour drive to go visit her. And I had to, you know, not had to, but I had to go back to full-time work. So just trying to figure out how to see her as much as possible was difficult. Her insurance was horrible. So she didn't have a great care home. Lots of things went into it. But eventually she passed. She had, I mean, I'm sorry. Eventually she was medicated and I brought her home. No, I brought her to um, a care home that I was managing at the time for hospice care. And I said, you know, to the place in LA, I said to them, like, look, she needs to go on hospice. And they were so desperate to save her that they were like, let me try one more thing. Let me try one more thing. And I was like, you guys, this is HD one more thing is not going to save her life, but for your sake so you can sleep at night, sure, try this one thing. Of course, it didn't work, and I bring her to the care home that I was managing in Santa Barbara called Sarah House, beautiful, amazing place, and I slept there for 11 days until she passed away. 
and I didn't leave. I just stayed there um, and took care of her. And um, that was a wild ride, but it was in her story the way it had to be for her safety, for my family's safety, for making sure that she had the best end of life possible. Even though it was 11 days, it still meant that she was surrounded by three of her four children, her grandchildren, you know, it was it was what it could be. Now, on the flip side, because I know that's what we were going to, and that, that was a very elaborate story, and this one will be much shorter. Um, as soon as my mom passed, my brother, Kevin, wanted to know his gene status. In his mind, he said he felt he already had it. And looking back, I think I was so distracted by saving my mom. And by saving my mom, I don't mean saving her life. I mean saving her suffering, making sure that her life was what it could be, the best of what it could be, whatever that meant. And so I was so distracted by that that I didn't notice that Kevin already had symptoms. Um, and so he, he wanted to test. He did, and it came back positive. And instantly, from that moment, he wanted to advocate. He wanted to participate. He wanted to be part of the community. He wanted to talk about his experience. He wanted to basically document everything without actually documenting it in the form of advocacy. Um, So moving forward, Kevin instantly started talking about the symptoms he's feeling, which were somewhat cognitive um, and then somewhat movements because he did have a couple of like almost like repetitive motion Korea um, in the very beginning. So um, he has now um, regularly seen his neurologist, his psychiatrist, um, and he doesn't really want to see a regular doctor unless he's sick, so that's fine. I mean, the neurologist and psychiatrist is covering everything that Kevin needs, um, but he's willing to try anything new. He's willing to, um, if there's a medication, like for example, he's on medication for his movements, and he has been on it since it it became available to our community. Um, So he's on Osteto. And then he, and that was his choice. Like, he thought it out because he was able to at that point. Um, He's on medications for tics that he has, verbal tics that's also associated with Korea, but he takes it for the vocal tics that he has. He takes stuff for anxiety. He takes stuff for depression. And he takes mood stabilizers. And I do believe that without those medications, his symptoms would be similar to my mom because there has been Korea still showing through his Osteto because he isn't on um, max dose. But I do know that as the disease progresses, obviously, so will his symptoms. So it's pushing through now and we're we're working with that and figuring that part out. But um, he is taking medications and I think without it, he would be a little bit more like my mom because he did have some outbursts that were uncharacteristically him um, when he was younger and growing up and into um, adulthood and all of that. So I do see how his psyche would be a little more similar to my mom's. You know, my mom would hear voices. My mom, um, I say this respectfully, but was delusional. Um, And, you know, Kevin has not shown signs of that. He has, you know, worked through depression and things like that, but he hasn't had to deal with the severity that my mom has because he's seeked out treatment. Um, 
and he likes to talk about HD. He's done several interviews. Um, he's gone to events. He was in um, a study um, when we were able to travel, but right now we live too far away from a center of excellence. Um, you know, we're smack dab in the middle of two, and they're, you know, one's five and a half hours away, and the other's about four. So, um, you know, he can't participate in in all the things he wants to, but he definitely is very vocal and supportive of the community and advocacy. So that was very long-winded, and I apologize. But no, um, no, I am so glad you shared all very of that. different. <laughs> I, I am so glad you shared all of that because it, what a perfect way to show, you know, the difference between untreated versus treated. Not only that, Katrina, you know, you, you mentioned feeling some guilt. And um, obviously, I'm, I'm never going to tell somebody how they should feel. Like, your feelings are valid. Um, yeah. But I can say, listening to this and knowing you, that what an amazing caregiver you are to continue to deal with all of that and help your mother. And even though it was hard to make the decision for her to go to a care home and, and you had to say, you know, my, my kids come first. These kids are, are first. You did it. And that's so yeah. important because she was then able to get that 24-hour care she needed and yeah. you were able to take care of the kids that you needed to take care of. That makes yeah. you yeah, no, an amazing caregiver. Um, you know, and, and so I hope that you – I hope you don't hold on to that guilt for very long because um, just the, you continue to fight. You continue to, you know, help your brother. You were there for your mother all the way to the end um, and yeah. literally searched her out to be able to help her. Yeah. And that just says, Yeah, my family thought I was crazy. My, my family <laughs> thought I was crazy. They were like, what are you doing? I'm like, she's my mother. Like, I know we had hard times, but she's my mom, you know? (laughs) But it just shows what an amazing person you are. What an amazing person you are, an amazing caregiver. Um, The fact you continue to even fight and help for HD when you're already dealing with all of these things already in your life um, just shows um, how wonderful you are. Well, thank you. That's, That's very, very sweet. And I think that, you know... I think if I didn't have a platform that um, Help for HD provides, I think that I would be, um, you know, more depressed than I already am. I mean, everybody's depressed these days, but like, I think I would be very dark um, because yeah. I it's it gives me a way to be like, okay, I'm around my people, but also it gives me a way because there's a lot of talk about gene negative status, right? Um, you, me, and HD is a perfect example, and I, I just have to give her a big shout-out because she, every time I read her post, I'm not very good at liking things. Sometimes I, like, literally read and scroll because I'm just not thinking about liking something, but I read all her stuff, and I can relate because I felt when I, um, you know, came onto the scene that I'm not as, important or whatever that's such a weird word um but as those who are gene positive or those who have 
um, children at risk, right? Like, I felt like, what are people going to learn from me? How can I bring value to this community, right? And I thought, well, before HD, I I was a caregiver before HD. Like, I was young when I started caregiving, you know. And I, I mean, in 2005, I lost my uncle to cancer. And I wasn't his full-time caregiver by any means, but that's my first, like, okay, this man is sick, like, being supportive to his wife and his child or his children and, you know, those kinds of things, like navigating that. And I was decently young. And then moving forward, you know, continuing to be caregiver, I'm like, well, I can offer support. I can offer perspective. I can offer um, caregiving, like, I don't like giving advice, but caregiver tips or um, strategies or navigating things. Um, you know, I have had to go through the system with IHSS and through the system with Social Security and testing with my brother and, you know, myself. So, like, there are things I can offer, but it took me a while to get there, like, to realize that there is something to um, testing negative and how important that role plays. But it took a while, you know, like, anyway, like, that's just kind of, you know, I do what I can with that, but I, I appreciate you saying so. That's very, very sweet of you. Um, and I think that a lot of peak community, like no matter which way HD touches you, it's all so important that, that you're here and that you're willing to, um, you know, hear, absorb, and also give what you can give, whatever that means. If that means an ear, a shoulder, um, whatever it is, but Help for HD has definitely created a space for me um, that made me feel like um, what I bring to the table is valuable. So I do owe a lot to, you know, to the organization for sure. <clears throat> oh, me too. I mean, I, I don't know what I would do without this podcast. I, the same as you, like, I think I would be in a much darker place um yeah if if i didn't have this and uh so i can definitely relate to that and um you know as far as as gene negative and feeling valuable i i think that i think that people who are gene negative have this really amazing perspective because they've been through testing um and they continue to deal with hd as caregivers and everything else um, even though they're not going to get the disease. And so at that point, it's a choice to, for most. True, and yeah. They're, they're choosing to do it, which says a lot, because those people who are gene negative are able to be the voices for those of us who are gene positive. And when we can't have a voice anymore, I'd much rather have somebody who's gene negative, who knows what it's like to go through testing, who knows what it's like, you know, to live with the am I am I experiencing symptoms and because right. you've been through that. And so you yeah. can have that perspective as the person who is gene negative. So you're you're providing a voice um when we can't. And so I think that's so important um for people to realize like there's absolute value in, in gene negative. There's absolute value in caregivers. Um you know, and and I think those of us who are gene positive often feel like, 
you know, we're not valuable because we're a burden. So to hear, to hear you share that um, means a lot because it makes me realize, like, we're not the only ones who are, who are dealing with that, um, those worries, those concerns, those thoughts that go through our head of, of um, not being worth it, you know? So yeah. Um, yeah. I truly appreciate you sharing as much as you did. Absolutely. Anytime. There's just, you know, I'm a talker, so sometimes I ramble and, you know, it's it, a lot came out today. So I think that's, that's good. And I'm sure a lot of people listening can relate to one piece or another. Um, and so I think that's, that's the benefit, right? Like, I think that's the whole purpose of what we're doing. So I'm glad, I'm glad um, this worked out today. Yeah, and we'll definitely have to do like a part two and and get into because I would love to hear your thoughts eventually on just the grief of it all um, because the yeah. the stuff that you dealt with there's so much grief and yeah so we'll have to do a part two because I'd be happy I would to. love to hear yeah, I'd be happy to to hear all of that so for for those of you listening um, we're just wrapping up on. HD Uncut, our second episode with Katrina Hamill, um, and she shared a lot of stuff with us today. It's really amazing, uncut, uncensored, real HD stuff. And um, so make sure that you listen to the whole podcast today. Um, just what a powerful, um, powerful show this is. Um, and if you are interested in coming on HD Uncut, um, to share your own story and, um, you know, and, and be part of, of this new series that we have, please feel free to reach out to me. My email is lauren at help4hd.org. Um, you can also find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, I'm all over social media, so um, feel free to reach out. I'd love to have you on sharing your stories. Um, And uh, today is also, I wanted to mention this, today is also um, gratitude, HD Gratitude Day. Um, And I just want uh, everybody to know how grateful I am for them, not only those of us who are, you know, in the HD community, but the professionals who continue to help us um, and work nonstop to to find um, new avenues for us. Uh, and that's what HD Gratitude Day is all about. And um, so I just wanted to, sh- to share my gratitude for everybody um, on this day. Um, and please make sure that you are tuning in every Thursday for a show. Uh, we'll be doing these HD Uncut shows um, every month. Uh, and I'm, I'm planning on the third Thursday of every month. So, um, yeah, feel free to, to reach out if you'd like to be part of it. You can also uh, go on to – Katrina mentioned the the books uh, where she wrote a chapter. I believe you can find that information on the website as well, the helpforhd.org website. And uh, their Life Interrupted is what the title is, right? And the second one is Life Interrupted Part 2? Correct. It's Volume 1 and Volume 2. Correct. And we have other books as well and other free resources that can be found on the website. So that's a great direction, yes. Yeah, so definitely check those out. Great stories in there as well. And until next time, guys, take care and love you.
thank you for listening. Don't forget to visit www.help4hd.org and sign up for our email newsletter to stay up to date on all that is going on at Help for HD. Get social with us and like us on Facebook. Follow us on Instagram and subscribe to Help for HD TV on YouTube and ring the bell for notifications. 